0: All right, Luke chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 through 20. And then we'll come back and begin to consider a few things here. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee... And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. So the title of this morning's study is, Why Jesus Came. It's a familiar account. There's not too many people at Christmas time, no matter where they may be in their understanding of uh, Jesus as the Messiah and Savior of the world, would understand that it's at this time that Jesus was born. Some, of course, would not. But most would know and have this, this point of reference. And I pray that our response is, is what we read there, is that people marveled. And we who know so much about the coming of Jesus Christ, that our hearts would be touched afresh. That it would create a sense of amazement and marvel that God has taken on human flesh. It is important for us to know who Jesus is and what he is like. It's important for us to know that he is the Savior and that he's come into this world. It's also important for us to know things about his character some of the things we're going to see today is that he's humble and that he's approachable. Because if we don't have the Bible to inform us, there will be some other information to come in our mind about Jesus. It may be your own thoughts that come from disappointment and hurt. It may be from other people who misspeak and they don't have the truth and it's not accurate. But the Word of God tells us exactly who Jesus is and what we should think of him. In those first four verses, we read of how Jesus came as a king. He came and was of the house, it says in verse four, and lineage of David. He was a descendant of King David, the one who killed Goliath, the one, the sweet psalmist of Israel, who spent time out in the fields, was a shepherd, and actually in this town right here in Bethlehem, right? And he was one that would write those songs and worship the Lord. It's where he learned to uh, commune with God so much on his own. Well, there came a time in his life after he had been anointed king and was ruling and reigning and actually was far into his reign and was wanting to build a temple for the Lord. And as he made plans, the prophet Nathan said, go ahead, do all that's in your heart. It is a good thing. But the Lord came to Nathan and said, That's not right. He's not going to do that. It's actually going to be his son Solomon who's going to build this temple. But when you tell David, no, he's not going to build me a house, let him know that I'm going to build him a house. And that house that he was going to build was going to be a house that would would find its climax in, in the person and the reign of Jesus Christ over Israel. And so we read just one of those verses in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16 and 17 says, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever according to all these words and according to all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So David's informed that there's going to be an eternal one that will rule and reign forever. It will take an eternal one to rule and reign forever. He's not talking about just there always will be the next individual for all of eternity. There are many who did sit upon the throne of David as his physical descendants. But there's one coming, a physical descendant, Jesus, of the, of the lineage of David that will rule and reign forever. A king was coming to Israel. And on this night, this Christmas night, the king was born. And yet Israel was not ready for a king, were they? They didn't want his lordship. They didn't want him to rule and reign over their their lives. While Jesus was just about to be crucified, in John 19, 15, we read this, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. That's more true than they probably even intended for it to be. Because they really did have no place. And Caesar really was their link. It was to Caesar and the whole Roman occupation that they paid money to buy the office of high priest. And to have that kind of access to manipulate the system. And to draw money and to rip people off. We've been talking about that actually on Wednesday evenings and how Jesus had cleaned the temple Twice, And how it grieved him so deeply that the house of the Lord, which was meant to be a place of prayer, had actually been turned into a den of thieves. And so the Lord rebuked that, but they have no place for him because they've got a pretty good little system already set up. And they don't need the Lord for it. And if Jesus comes in, he's going to continue to turn the tables. He's going to continue to mess up their system. And so when they say, we have no king but Caesar, it was really a lot more true than I'm sure they even thought their words were going to be. I'm sure they saw this as nothing more than a mere political statement that would appease Pilate to do what they wanted. To manipulate him. Who's your king, Pilate? Because we don't have any but Caesar. And so this was meant to control them in this way. But it is interesting. When Herod um, heard that Jesus had come and had been born, a young child had been born, and wise men from the east had come to worship this king, when they found out he was born in Bethlehem and the wise men never reported back to tell him where he was, King Herod decided to issue a decree that would have all the the children, two years and younger, uh, male children, put to death to make certain he could get rid of the king because he didn't want the king either. So he came as a king, but they didn't want a king. Herod didn't want a king, and, and neither did the, the religious leaders. But many people didn't want the king. They rejected him over and over again. I pray that you have learned to welcome the lordship and the rule of Jesus Christ in your heart and over your life. It's a good thing to have the king ruling over your life. Now listen, you can't say that about just any person, though, can you? But you can definitely say that about Jesus. And you know why you can say that about Jesus? Because he is the one that loves you. He is the lover of your soul. How many people can that be said of? as it relates to you, that he loves your soul. And he loves you so much that he came and he died on the cross that he might take the guilt and the shame and the penalty of your sin, your error, my sin and my error and die upon the cross that he might redeem us, that we might have a place with him in eternity. That's the one that you can say rule over my life. You know, you can't say that about, that about everybody. And really, you may not want to say that about anybody else other than Jesus. But you can definitely say that about Jesus. I, you may be here this morning out of consideration to family and friends, mom and dad. I don't know. But you're here at a Christmas service, and we are so glad that you are. But I just want to tell you, as one who has followed the Lord and walked with the Lord my entire life, I would not want to think of living this life without his lordship over my life, without his words of wisdom and guidance and direction, because he's not some politician or some king small k that just is trying to secure his power base and make certain that he has something in the future. Future's taken care of, and he already knows that. He is going to rule and reign, and he needs to do nothing for that to happen. It will happen. And we, do not, we don't add anything to him. He is complete in and of himself, but we are made complete, and we're made complete under his rule and reign. And so we live in a time we can have a very independent spirit. Nobody's going to tell me what to do, but I would say let Jesus tell you what to do because he made you. He died for you, he rose from the dead for you, and he's coming back again to let you be a part of his kingdom. He is completely trustworthy. Don't reject him. Now, for many of us in here, I realize you've already accepted that rule of Christ in your life. But maybe in this past year, things have kind of shifted and changed. And you find you found it difficult. You maybe even have become angry and even questioned the goodness and the love of the Lord. Because of the things that you've experienced or because of the prayers that have not been answered the way you want them to be answered. And I just want to caution you against that. I, if, if we could see the Lord, I imagine we would see him just going, but I died on the cross for you. But, I, but I've forgiven you of your sins, but I've made you righteous like me. But I'm coming back for you. I've got a kingdom set up for you. And everything that ails you and everything that hurts you and harms you and brings sadness in your life. One day that will be gone and none of that's going to remain. I'm doing things you don't understand. And you live in a fallen world with evil people that do evil things. And you have bodies that are still subject to sickness and death and disease. But one day you won't. Don't give up on following King Jesus. Don't begin to question this king who loves your soul because nobody else cares for you and loves you like he does. In verses 5 through 7, we learn that Jesus came as a servant. There's a few things that we see here um, that would give us this indication. Um, We read that He's born in the city of Bethlehem. He's born in Bethlehem. Uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Jerusalem, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. David prophesied, or had a prophecy given to him by Nathan, that there would come a descendant, Jesus, that would rule and reign. Some five, six hundred years um, beforehand, Micah, the prophet, is saying exactly where Jesus is going to be born. Those two prophecies alone limit who could ever even claim to be the Messiah. You must be a descendant of King David, and you must be born in Bethlehem. And there's a couple of other hundred prophecies that you got to fulfill. We didn't get the wrong guy. We have the right guy. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king, the descendant of David, and he is born In Bethlehem. Does anybody know what the name Bethlehem means? It's house of bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he is born in the house of bread, the the city of David. This is where uh, King David's hometown was. The census has caused Mary and Joseph to leave Nazareth and travel to Bethlehem. When the wise men came, they inquired, where is he born? And the the leaders quickly said, oh, it's easy. That's an easy question. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so he was born there. And this speaks of some humility. Um, Even Micah says, though you are little among the thousands of Judah. If you were on the planning committee for, you know, go Jesus to planet Earth. And you had to pick the location, and you weren't familiar with Micah chapter five verse two, you probably wouldn't have chose Bethlehem. But there are so many good reasons why Bethlehem would be chosen. I mean, even one that he's a descendant of David, um, the name and the the, the association is powerful. The house of bread, we're going to eat of the bread. And Jesus said, I am, this is my body, this bread broken for you. There's so much symbolism associated with that. But you know, if you were on that team, you could imagine a conversation that would say, all right, wherever he's born, there's got to be a place that's going to have some influence and some power. There's got to be some pop to it. That when people find out, oh, he was born in Rome, or he was born in Jerusalem, or Athens, or Alexandria, that people are going to take notice and say, okay then. He's come from a place of, that's well known, but instead he came from a place that everybody said, where? Bethlehem? Little among the thousands of Judah? It's kind of like you, when people say, hey, where do you live? And you say, Lynchburg, Virginia, and they're like, what do they say next? Where? Where do you live? And they, you, my friends in California say, man, it doesn't sound like a friendly town. I'm like, get some education. And then I educate them on why it is called Lynchburg. But, you know, even more so, and I'll offend maybe two, because I don't think there's many more down there than that, but if you were to say Lynch Station, right? If he, you, oh, there's one. So, um, <laughs> so from Lynch Station, people don't, I mean, they had, haven't heard of that. People in Lynchburg haven't even heard of Lynch Station. I mean, and, and yet if you said I was from Lynch Station or I was from Lynchburg, Virginia, people are like, oh, okay, never heard of it. That's the response that people have. Bethlehem was not a place that would have impressed. It wouldn't have been on your top 10 list of influential cities to have the king born that he might be able to have a great uh, um, kind of from this city. We know they like to say that. Not a big deal to us, but it's Jesus of Nazareth, right? You always were going to say where you're from. And whenever Jesus said that he was from Nazareth, people would say, don't expect much from that place. So Bethlehem would fall into that that same category. The only thing that makes Bethlehem interesting, there's a couple of stories in the Old Testament, of course, with David coming from there, but also the whole story contained in the book of Ruth happens in the fields where these shepherds are going to see the announcement. So he comes as a servant. He's born in Bethlehem, and he's laid in a manger. And, you know, the manger you should be thinking of, or many archaeologists will say, it's a stone feeding trough for animals. So that's what it would look like. You know, maybe you have in your mind a wood um, a wooden trough? No, it's, it's a stone trough. And um, I, they've got a picture. There it is. And so, this is this is common. Now, we don't know for a fact that it was stone. But we do know that these last a lot better than wood. So, I mean, there could have been both. But, but you'll see these. If you go around Israel, you'll see them um, all over, scattered throughout the land. But, you know, why is he being laid in a manger? Why would you take a king? And have him born in Bethlehem and then lay in him a manger. Well, we're going to read it in just a moment. Um, it will be a, a, our next point. But there, there was no room in the inn. So they found a place that would have probably been for animals, right? He was born in a, a, you know, a location where they would need um, a feeding trough. You may say, well, how can you credit Jesus for with humility for where he was born and the circumstances of his birth. Because before Jesus took on human flesh, before the divine nature of the Logos, right, and, the, and, and this, this child Jesus were fused together into one person, the God-man, you had the Logos that had, uh, or the, the pre-incarnate Christ That had dwelt for all of eternity. He knew the story. There was no protest. There was no change. He came to Bethlehem. He was born in a place where animals would have been born. He was laid in a manger. And we do read there in verse 7 that there was no room for them in the inn. We've already talked about how Herod had no room for uh, one that was going to be a king and he sought to kill him. The religious leaders had no place for a king because they already had Caesar. The, sw- uh, the, the herdsmen of the swine of the Gadareans, they didn't have room for him and they asked him to depart and leave their area after he had cast the demon out of that man. Demons, I should say. Pilate had no place for Jesus That was a political hot potato, and he didn't want to get caught when the music stopped supporting Jesus, who was a king. Agrippa had no place for Jesus unless he was going to do a magic show for him. The question, though, that's really important is, is there room for you? Now, why was there no room in the inn? Because it was a census, and everybody was traveling. Everybody needed accommodations, so it was filled up. And there was no place for them. Now the inn was not like a hotel. It was basically just a courtyard that would have had some kind of barrier around it. And it would have been the most modest of, of, of places to be. But they couldn't even find that. And so they were out in a place that you would find a manger in some kind of barn of sorts. Maybe just a cave in the, in the field. And there are plenty of caves around uh, Bethlehem. And it's... Not unlikely that he might have, you know, they would have taken animals in there. We know that they do that. They still do that to this day. And it's a great place for shelter. So it is, it is very likely that where they were, was just in, in one of the, the caves around Bethlehem. But the question is that we have to deal with is, is there room for Jesus in my life? Is there room for King Jesus? So what do we learn about this humility? What's the takeaway for us? Well, turn with me over to Philippians. We're going to read chapter 2. I've got a few verses for you up there, but actually just go over there because I want to read more than that. So turn to Philippians chapter 2, and I want to read down to verse 11 of chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. How did he do that? Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul makes it very clear that Jesus' coming, that incarnation... Uh, moment of Jesus being born was a display of his humility that he came as a servant and he took no consideration of his reputation he was born as a man now we hear that and it doesn't quite resonate for us because it's like well we we've been created in the image of God we're at the top of the food chain I mean what else is he going to come as he came as you know man right but do we understand what an incredible step down it was for Jesus to become a man? Do we understand that there's, it's hard to even find a comparison? I'm not going to develop the whole illustration, but we've talked about it before. Imagine if you get to heaven and the Lord asks you to go to a planet of dogs and bring a message of salvation and you have to become a dog. You're going to feel like, it's a humiliation of sorts. Are you going to feel like you would, would you have to set aside your pride? And then he's going to say, oh, and by the way, you're going to be, you know, you're not going to be a purebred. You're going to be, you know, a little mutt born in an alley. And um, you're going to be, a, you know, a little, a little one too. And they're going, to, they're going to do whatever they want to you. You know, that begins to touch the humiliation, that step down that Jesus took when he became a man, But he did that because he wanted to serve us, because he loves us. If he was going to redeem mankind, then there had to be a redeemer that was of man. Because it's man who was lost in his sin. It couldn't be a lamb alone that was saved. And that was a covering that looked forward to the Lamb of God in Jesus Christ. But that lamb had to come. Jesus had to come. He was the only way that there would be that final covering. And all those who had sacrificed in faith, looking for the coming of the Messiah, would find that redemption. He had to come. And it had to be man. This is a whole story of the book of Ruth, isn't it? When you read through Ruth, the significance of Ruth is, is that there's a kinsman redeemer. Boaz, who's willing to step in and he's willing to pay the redemption price of a land and the redemption obligation of a near relative to give Ruth a a, 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 a descendant. And so he becomes a kinsman redeemer. You couldn't buy the land. You couldn't have been that redeemer for Ruth Unless you are near of kin, you can't redeem mankind unless you are near of kin. And Jesus came and became our kinsman redeemer. But this was not a step up. This was not a lateral move. This was a huge step down. He says it. He says, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man wasn't concerned about his reputation he's willing to become a man so it tells us of this incredible incredible humbling that happened and not just his incarnation but then his death there in verse 8 says even the death of the cross of all the ways in which jesus would die he died a criminal's death this was reserved for the worst of the worst capital punishment was what the cross was for and this is what he experienced. And so we see the love of the Lord. We see the kindness of the Lord. We see the desire of the Lord to redeem us and to give us the hope of life. And he came. We read there in verses 8 through 20 that he came as a savior. Specifically verse 11 where it says for there is born to you this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord and um, when he came, um, verse eight speaks of how there were shepherds living out in the fields, and they watched their flock by night. Jesus came as the Savior, and there were shepherds there in the field of Bethlehem. You know, there's a picture there of the field of Bethlehem, um, and it's probably not changed a whole lot. Of course, there's there's buildings that have grown up around it, and I'm sure. The landscape has been, you know, modified over the years and dirt's been moved and stuff. But you get an idea, you know, they're still feeding sheep out there. And this, this is the region where a Boaz would have been with Ruth. This is the region where King David would have uh, been born and had been raised and had watched over the, the flocks. This is the place where Jesus was born. This is a place where the shepherds were um, tending their flock by night. So he comes as a a savior to the shepherds there in Bethlehem. And we know why. He came to ransom men. He came to be a savior. Mark 10 verses 43 through 45 says, Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be a servant. And whoever desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself or his life a ransom for many. He came to serve. There was a humiliation in the coming, but he came to be a servant. The incarnation. But he's saving us. He's ransoming us. From what? What is he saving us from? (laughs) The consequences of our own sinful actions. The soul that sins, the Bible says, will surely what? Die. Will surely die. You will, you're not going to live. And we see that death on the physical level, but there's a death that comes spiritually, a separation that comes. But God was not willing to see you separated from him for all of eternity without first stepping in to seek to redeem you to seek and save that which was lost. And so Jesus came as a lamb of God and he suffered on the cross and he died having your sins and my sins and the sins of the world placed upon him, imputed to him. And for those that come in faith and receive him, we receive forgiveness and the imputed, the transferred righteousness of God to our lives. What a beautiful thing. It's an interesting idea that the sheep that would have been watched by these shepherds very well might have been sheep that were intended for the temple sacrifices. Let me read to you a quote. Um, it's from Leon Morris, and he's quoting a few different places uh, from the Mishnah and from the Talmud writings of the Jews. It says, It is not unlikely that the shepherds were pasturing flocks destined for the temple sacrifices. Flocks were supposed to be kept only in the wilderness. And a rabbinic rule provides that any animal found between Jerusalem and a spot near Bethlehem must be presumed to be a sacrificial victim. Well, that is true of Jesus, isn't it? The Lamb of God. This is what John said. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every Jew was familiar with lambs being offered up and sacrificed. And for sin they were sacrificed. That Jesus was born there in the house of bread. And that he is going to become the bread of life. And that he is also that lamb. And that he would be a sacrificial victim wherever that spot was that this rabbinic rule is providing is referring to, it's my, it's my belief he was within that region. And those lambs were there, and they would have been lambs quite possibly that would have been making their way. An interesting note that uh, Leon Morris goes on to make is the same rule speaks of finding Passover offerings within 30 days of that feast. In other words, in February... Since flocks might thus be in the fields in winter, the traditional date for the birth of Jesus is not ruled out. It doesn't confirm it, but you've probably heard people say, well, it can, cannot be possible that he was born in December because it's cold and there wouldn't be sheep there at that time. Well, actually, that's not true historically. And I, and, and really, in modern times, there, I've... I was doing some search research, and there's pictures of, of shepherds out on the field on Christmas Day um, in Bethlehem. So it's completely possible that they um, were out there at this time of the year. I know that some say, and it's just there's no evidence for it. They say the reason why people chose, you know, uh, December 25th is because it was a pagan holiday, and this was, you know, you know, why they chose this day. So if you worship Jesus and his coming on December 25th, you're all messed up and you should feel bad about yourself. Don't feel bad about yourself. Worship him every day and that he's come. But let me just, a little news flash here. Uh, Julius Africanus decided to write down the chronology of the world. And he decided to choose December 25th for the birth of, because he believes that was the day that the world was created. We don't know if that's true or not. But he figured that if that's the day that the world was created, then that's the day that the creator would have come to the world. So that that was his thinking. What does that mean? Well, it just means that there was a Christian thought of worship and typology that was going into the thoughts and the minds of people that were working on the calendars. Does it prove it? It doesn't prove it. But I'm just saying, enjoy your Christmas on December 25th and don't worry about it, whether it's cold or whatever. Um, You know, basically it comes down to choose your historian and the one that you want to believe in. Because Scripture doesn't deal with it. But these are not reasons that are often given. They're historically, and even in modern times, they're just not true. Um, So, yeah, you could find the... Sheep out in February in the fields near Bethlehem. In verse 8, we read that the Lord came that there might be joy. I bring you, well, actually, verse 8, not verse 8, not for that one. Verse, I'm sorry, verse 10. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all people. The Lord came to bring joy. The Lord came to be a savior. The Lord came to be a servant, one that was really approachable. And on that point before we get into the joy because I didn't I don't think I made this this point. The sinners did they did feel comfortable coming to Jesus, didn't they? They would come into dinner meetings. He was so approachable. They would invite him to their homes, and they would approach him. And he was ridiculed for his approachability, that sinners would come. They actually accused Jesus of being a friend of sinners. They meant it to be a negative thing, but it actually was exactly true. And aren't we all glad that Jesus is a friend of sinners? So he was all of these things. This is why he came, but he also came that there might be joy. God offers peace and joy, peace with him, but also joy. And this is a joy that's not based upon you having a trouble-free life and a long string of great happenings. Because life doesn't work out that way, does it? You might get it for a little while. You might have it for a little while where you have just like, wow, all the troubles seem to be gone lately. Well, that's all right. Keep living. <laughs> Things are going to change. And there's going to be another hard time. There's going to be another difficulty. If our joy is based upon a a long string of, you know, fortuitous happenings and a, a cessation of trouble, then we're never going to know joy through this life. You can know happiness because happiness is based on happenings. But joy is something different. Joy is not responding to the elements around Joy is setting the, the, the environment. It's what's saying the thermostat. This is what the thermostat will be, joy. It's, it's, it's very different. Joy is like the thermo, uh, thermostat. Happiness is like a thermometer. It measures things. But joy, it sets things. And this is what the Lord has come to give, is great joy to all people. Not just to the nation of Israel, but to all people. How wonderful this is. And if you don't know this joy, then come to Jesus Christ. And if you have come to Jesus and you have known that joy, but it's starting to feel a little bit elusive in, elusive in your life, then make certain that you keep your, your, your hope set upon the things that the king has come to give. And your joy will remain. In verse 20... As we wrap it up here, of chapter 2, it says, Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as as it was told them. So announcement came to the shepherds. Again, this speaks to us of the approachability of the Lord and his willingness that all might come to salvation. You know, we think of the shepherds, and our mind usually goes to, you know, kind of the quaint little manger scenes. Or we think of David out in the fields of Bethlehem, writing the Psalms and writing the hymns, but that's really not how they were viewed in the first century Jerusalem. Probably closer to what they were viewed like, remember, as we went through Genesis, and how they believed the... uh, the shepherds to be unclean and the Egyptians didn't want to be around shepherds. It's that same kind of idea. So when the Lord comes and makes this grand announcement and the curtains of heaven open up and the choir is there to sing their amazing song, there's only a couple of shepherds. And those shepherds in that day, typically, they were not considered good people. More like if you went into town and you were shopping and you saw the shepherds coming, it's pull your wife close, get your kids close, hold on to your wallet. That's more of what to expect. And and I'll read to you um, uh, Robert Stein, drawing it from um, writings in the Sanhedrin, says, one should not romanticize the occupation of shepherds. In general, shepherds were dishonest, and unclean according to the standards of the law. They represent the outcasts and sinners for whom Jesus came. Such outcasts were the first recipients of the good news. Now think about that Go Team Jesus planning committee. And you have your first opportunity to make the big announcement. This is two years, right? This is the night of the, the birth. This is two years before the, sh- the wise men are going to show up. So here's the big announcement. And when the curtains are drawn, you have, what, three, four, five, six shepherds? I don't know how many. That's it? And it's shepherds? And it's in Bethlehem? And he's lying in a manger? Who was in charge of this operation? Because this is completely the wrong way to bring a king into the world. And yet, these shepherds sat there and they, they saw this in amazement. But it speaks to us, right? Why he came? He came for the outcasts. He came for shepherds, and all of us are shepherd-like. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 gives us the good news, though. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. What's that? If you say you're not an outcast, you're saying God's a liar. So the Lord has called us all outcasts. We're all sinners, which means he has come for us. So if you have dismissed yourself as one that God would want to avoid, you don't understand God. You have developed your own thinking of who the Lord is. You have maybe had somebody else give you a a picture of who the Lord is. But here's the biblical account. Jesus came and revealed himself heaven revealed to the shepherds that Jesus had come because that's who he was coming for. It it, it really is a kind of a, a, a prefiguring of the words of Jesus when he says, I have not come for those that are well. I have come for those that are sick. I've come for shepherds. I've come for notable sinners. I've come for people whose lives are all messed up. That's who I've come for. So listen, Jesus came for you. Now, if you think, well, that's not me, then may the Lord reveal that it is you. As we just read there in 1 John, if you say that you have no sin, you make him a liar. We are those sinners that are in desperate need of a Savior. And he has come. It is King Jesus. And I pray that you will come and you will receive his joy and his forgiveness and his grace. And if you have received it, then I pray you will rejoice over it. I pray that you'll marvel at all that's been given to you. Now, here's the thing: most of what I've said today, for a lot of you, you already know all of that. I don't know. Maybe the Julianus Africanus. I got you on that one. I don't know. But most of you know all of this. You know these things, and it's great that you know them. But like me, I I just found myself studying for this thing, Lord. May I marvel again that you would come after me that way. We're going to share in communion in just a moment. And as the elements come around, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have received the the kingship and the lordship of Christ over your life, then we are going to ask you to take the bread and the cup. They're stacked together. And hold on to that and we'll share together. But Jesus instituted this meal for his followers that we could take and eat and drink and allow ourselves to remember him. As the bread comes around, remember that he is from the house of bread. He is the bread of life. As you look at the cup, note the color, and it's the color of the the blood of a lamb that has been slain for you, redeemed you because he loves you. And allow it to just speak to your heart again of of how much he loves you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy that you've shown to us. Father, that you would send your son to take on human flesh. Give us insight. Give us the understanding that Paul had when he said that he humbled himself was not worried about his reputation, but became a man. Lord, we, we have the truth, and it's so well known to us, and we're grateful that, Lord, these things are in our heart and in our mind, but may they be in our heart and not just in our mind. So speak to us, we pray this morning, in the name of Jesus.